Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. I'm Auntie Larrick, and this is David Smith. Yellow. The Executive Director of the Illinois Family Institute and Illinois Family Action. Dave, a lot to talk about. Critical race theory, public school exit, our upcoming Worldview Conference, and maybe a little politics. And a banquet at the end of the year with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Can't beat it. Well, we're joined by Pastor Cesar LaFleur, an IFI board member, a pro-life advocate, and he is with the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. Cure addresses issues of culture, poverty, and race relations from a Judeo-Christian conservative perspective. That is in big contradiction to the Biden administration and its embrace of critical race theory, Pastor. Absolutely. Well, you know, what CURE specifically, what we do is we, there's an intersection between public policy and our faith. We actually believe that the, the answers to the problems of the world are not just political in themselves, but they're spiritual. Amen. And so there needs to be a fusion of our faith, our faith principles into our public policy, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to redeem society. So that's one of the things that CURE is known for in Washington, D.C., uh, we are the voice for urban pastors in Washington, D.C., which is very much needed. So, and, that, yeah. and that is a biblical mission because we know the Bible tells us that in and of ourselves there, are, there is no good thing. And so if we try to solve this apart from God... <laughs> yeah, we, we, without God we can do nothing. We'll probably make it worse. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's one of the lessons we're slow to learn because we continue. And many times in our zeal to do good... We try to do it ourselves. We try to work it out ourselves. We try to work harder and work at it. But we've right. got to get to the place where we're comfortable in saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to seek you because if you don't do it, right. it's not going to happen. If the Lord doesn't build a house, keep the house, the watchman waketh in vain. And we, what we're seeing on the streets uh, of our big cities is a lot of um, unrest, bitterness, anger, resentment, mm -hmm. and that, uh, to me, does not fall under the fruit of the Spirit, does no, it? No, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and a lot of it has to deal with frustration. I've met pastors who have just really frustrated because they've lost patience, they've lost their, their faith. You know, they just sure. say, hey, it's never going to change, it's never going to be any different. But uh, I pray for God all the time to just give me wisdom and give me patience and trust in you. Mm. That's right. Are, That's but right. are these pastors who, who actually embrace the teachings of the Bible, who have lost hope? Or are they pastors who are set in the Word, but they're discouraged? Well, I believe, you know, yeah, there is a discouragement that comes along, but the pastors I know, they haven't lost hope. You know, there was a song Twilight Paris uh, wrote years ago, The Warrior is the Child. Mm -hmm. It says, you know, even the greatest warriors sometimes have to drop their sword and cry, mm. you know, but then you get back up, you know, and so it's okay. You know, I, I look at the Lord Jesus. He he became, you know, seemed apparent like a loss of hope. Father, why have you forsaken me? Right. You know, and, but nevertheless, <laughs> your, your will be done. So some of these pastors, uh, they, they simply go through moments of doubt, these, these trials of their faith. But those who are really in the Lord, they come back. They come back. Pastor, as a black man, you have encountered racism 
probably still do today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell yeah. me about your experience. Well, you know, I was born in Mississippi. Uh, my parents were from Mississippi, but we moved to Chicago. When well, that I, was just a few years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like 60 years ago. Well, 29 years ago. Well, we'll go with that one. But we moved to the south side of Chicago. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago. In fact, we were the second black family to move into our community. No kidding. We moved in on July 4th, 1962, mm. when we moved into our house. And that night, we did not sleep a wink because mm. there were people outside of our house throwing bricks, throwing bottles, you know, setting our garbage can on fire, you know, just really threatening our house. So I had that experience from a very young age. That's horrible. That we moved into a community where people didn't want us. One of my most devastating experiences was when I was a senior in high school at CVS when we graduated. Chicago Vocational High School. Chicago Vocational School, right. The greatest high school in the history (laughs) of the world. We'll um, talk about that later. You know, there was 998 people in my graduation class. So the picnics, the senior picnics after the prom got split up in a lot of different places. We went to Maple Lake out on the other side of Oak Lawn. Okay. And there was a group of about 50 of us out there. You know, it was a small group from the school. There was one white guy, Monty, that came out, and we welcomed him. You know, he, he sat at the table. He talked with us, and we were getting along. Sooner or later, we noticed more and more white kids were coming, like seems like out of nowhere. And the, uh, the park police came and told us and said, hey, you guys – load up your car, and get out of here. While we were loading up, <clears throat> these people lined both sides of the street. Oh, my. And they picked up rocks, bottles, and everything. And as we drove out, we had to go through a gauntlet where they were smashing us with bottles and wow. bricks. And when we got to the other end, when the police came, instead of arresting the people who did it, they arrested us. Wow. So as a critic of critical race theory, mm-hmm. uh, you're not denying that racism is, exists. Not, yeah, right. Absolutely not. It would be ridiculous to say that there hasn't been a history of racism here and that racism is still present. As long as there are wicked hearts, there's going to be racism and all kind of things that's going to take place. But, yeah, the r- racism is real. But my problem is when we hold everyone responsible in a certain group for what some of the other people have done in that group. And one of the things that critical race theory does is that it just it broadcasts and it says everyone of a certain race right. is guilty of a certain behavior. That's right. It was kind of born out of a, a legal discussion about, you know, is it possible for a black person to get justice in our legal system? And they said it wasn't because the justice system was set up to deny us justice. And it's kind of spread out across the board to speak to everything. But here's where I have a problem with critical race theory is that it leaves out the concept of grace. It leaves out the concept of grace. Hmm. Talking about it from that perspective. Critical grace reality. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm going to be talking about uh, in May, in this right. month. Right. How are black people in America being victimized by <clears throat> liberal Marxist systemic racism? Well, it, because it's a deception. You know, it talks about how people are taken captive. They're taken captive by a lie. There are individuals who pretend that they really care about a person, but right. they really don't. They don't. They care about their own agenda. That's exactly right. And so right. what some of these individuals are doing is that they're taking, they're co-opting our grievance, our experience, our history. Yes. The tragedy of our lives. And they're using that to manipulate 
in order to be able to gain power. They really don't care anything about us. Boy, you're spot on, But they're Caesar. using what we've experienced as a way to empower themselves, which is kind of like behind this whole CRT discussion. And you said it. They're not interested in solving the problem. Not at all. No, they want to keep it going so they have reason to stir things up. Absolutely. And, and their policies are really the causes behind this, if you think about it. Fatherless mm-hmm. homes. Absolutely. Uh, no investment in black mm-hmm. communities. Uh, failing schools. And there's no way out. How about this, too? I just recently read a story saying um, how many uh, people have been stuck at Cook County Jail mm-hmm. um, for more than a year waiting for trial. Right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people are going to be minorities. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Well, who runs the Cook County Jail? Who runs the state's attorney? Mm-hmm. Who run the courts in Cook County? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it's the Democrats, and they've run it for decades. Well, I don't have to tell you, but you there's systematic system. How do you say systemic. that word? Systemic, yeah. systemic racism right there. Absolutely. If you look at the, the, the major urban areas, you know, the major cities that have been run by Democrats forever. Yeah. New Orleans has been run by Democrats forever. Yep. Detroit, Chicago. And the people that are running those cities, you know, when you look at the police chiefs, they're normally black. The district attorneys are black. The mayors are black. Most of the police force is black. <laughs> so do you tell me then, how then do we see this systemic racism? Right. You know, we just came off of a time when we had a black president. Right. We had, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus. That's right. You know, we had black uh, governors and mayors. But, but and, let's look at this Cook County situation, the Cook County Jail. They got over a 1,000 people waiting over a year for trial. I'm sorry, isn't there a constitutional amendment? I mean, we're talking about in the Bill of Rights about the right to a speedy trial? Absolutely. Where's the news media? Where are they screaming and hollering about the denial of that constitutional right for a 1,000 people in the jail? Well, Dave Smith and anyone else who's listening to this, if you look to the news media for (laughs) fairness and justice, then you are... yeah. You, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Well, I, you know, that was bait. Yeah, know, absolutely. I, gotcha. I pulled you in on that one. Because the news media, to me, are the biggest violators. Yeah, they, you know, there, there is no journalism now. Nope. They're, they're not journalists. They're influencers. That's right. You know, they're activists. And yeah. they, they benefit from this as much as they can keep this in the news. Good and, point. Right. And, and the strategy now is just to keep silent on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't uh, give an objective view just be silent on it or leave out some of the details yeah so let me just say this really quickly because i I get in trouble all the time you know as a black conservative especially one who's active on on, on social media you get roasted yeah i get in trouble all the time but there's some things when we talk about you know that i just it just cries out somebody needs to point it out you know we had just recently all of these uh asian acts of violence against Asian people. Yeah, sure. And they talked about it over and over and over again, but they never talked about who were the ones that was doing it most of the <laughs> Perpetrating. time. Perpetrating. Who were the individuals who, who were doing it? Just saw a, a lady in California, a, a, a Hispanic police officer pulled her over. Yes. She was a black woman, yep. and she just berated this man, called him a that. murderer, you know, said racist things against him, but they covered up her face. And the media says they're not going to identify <laughs> who she is. 
But if that had been a white guy yeah. doing that, they would have blasted it everywhere. It would have been viral already sure. because they know what the outcome of it would be. And she's supposedly a teacher. She said she was a teacher. A teacher. And it, if that would have happened, I think there was a case where a guy went through a drive-thru and said something wrong to somebody in the drive-thru. Mm -hmm. He was immediately fired. Do you remember that yeah, story? Yeah, remember something about that. I mean, immediately fired. Right. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Why then would they do that? Is because the media and politicians have a vested interest in seeing these racial divisions <clears throat> exasperated. They want us to go back to the to the civil rights era, to the '60s, right. because they don't have a glory of their own. They don't have a purpose of their own. Mm. So they want to go back to those days when mm. it seemed to be that they, you know, you, you had these great civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King, sure. and all those individuals, and and the, the success of that movement. Yep. Some, some some of them thinks that that was our last great moment. So they would take this country back they to that. They want to relive it. So that they can save us from a battle that God has delivered us from Amen. for the most part. That's well, right. Let me kind of ask you about that. Yeah. Advocates of critical race theory seem to be trying to replace the colorblind ideal that of treating all people equally, mm -hmm. a major achievement of the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. with a strategy that implements race-based policies mm -hmm. such as affirmative action right. and reparations. Mm -hmm. They're making a mistake. They are. And first of all, let me just deal with that. I don't believe in a colorblind society. I, I'm not colorblind. I see color. Because God created our differences. I, I just respond to it differently. I know I recognize the fact that we have different cultures, you know, with, with different colors. And we can celebrate that. We can celebrate it. We can also, we could, there's things, I always say, you know, I accept it. I acknowledge it. I accept it. Yep. And there's certain things that, you know, I'll, I'll just take for myself. There's certain things about black culture that white people really benefit from. Absolutely. There's certain things from white culture sure. and other cultures, Hispanic culture. So I don't, I don't believe in this colorblind situations. However, there are individuals who want to use our differences instead of as a way of uniting us, as a way of separating us. And the way to do that is that you have to condemn one behavior yeah. as being un unacceptable and, and another behavior as being accepted. Martin Luther King says the time when his children would be judged, not by the color of their skin, but by the content, the of, content their of their character. And I'm saying that's where we need to be. If you are a white racist, I'm going to hold you, Monty Larrick, if you were a racist, I'm going to hold you responsible for it's, your behavior. It's worse than that. He's a Cincinnati Reds fan. Well, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you need to be held responsible for that. Not, not every white person you know, needs to be responsible for that. Oh, what can I say? I grew up with a big red machine. So. <laughs> and I hated him. <laughs> so... Um, you know, Reverend King was actually paraphrasing when he said judge um, uh, his children by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. He was paraphrasing a biblical verse that mm -hmm. said, God doesn't judge the outside of a man, but judges the heart. Right. Man looks at the outside. That's it. God looks go. at the heart. Exactly. And that's where we should be looking, is that looking at the heart of an individual. I had a debate with my wife once. And we kind of went back and forth on it because we were talking about police You brutality. only had one debate with your wife? Well, well I've had a few with mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really did correct that. One per hour. But we, we were talking about, she was saying, you know, what, what happens when a police officer, white police officer, pulls over a black person and then just mistreats him or he's rude? Isn't that proof that he's a racist? I'm saying that to, that's not proof that he's a racist. Now, it's possible. We don't know what's in a man's heart. But the guy could just be a jerk. He could be just having a bad day, 
we've got to allow for the fact that humans are humans. Yeah. In every interaction between me and you, me as a black person and you as a white person, it's not always going to go smooth. But that doesn't mean I actually jump right to the way you are a racist. You don't like me because you are a racist. You might not like me because I'm a jerk. Well, yeah. and we also have to... Um consider that the policeman might be actually doing his job or her job in pulling us over and questioning us. Mm -hmm. um, there was a situation when I was uh, working my way through college, um, 111th and Western, was mm -hmm. working at a, a little family restaurant, and we were closing up, and one of the young teenagers there who uh, went to Morgan Park High School, went on the football team, I played for the same team, um, was closing up shop with me, and I said, hey, Mike, what are you doing? How are you getting home? And he said, I'll just take the bus. And I said, oh, it's a Saturday night. The bus ain't running that much. I'll take you home. And it was on the other side of the Dan Ryan over by Morgan Park, and we went into Morgan Park, and I dropped him off at home. As I was pulling away, I got pulled over by an unmarked squad car. And they wanted to know what was I doing in that neighborhood at that time. You must be there looking for drugs. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. I was up to no good. Right. But no, I want to, in having this conversation, I don't want to sound naive because I do recognize that there are racists. I have yes. I feel I have to yes. keep saying that. Yeah. And there are cops of police officers who overstep their bounds. And Absolutely. they and Drunk they, with power. Drunk with power, and they do horrible things. That's right. But we just cannot label all police officers no. if they're white nope. as racist and murderers. That's, that's not right. That's right. Well, are there maybe one or two things uh, associated with critical race theory that maybe you can kind of go along with? Yeah. Anything there? I know I'm white, okay? And, uh, for, and I believe that my whiteness might be. And I believe that my whiteness, in some instances, mm -hmm. may have given me some advantages oh, over or blacks mm -hmm. and Hispanics. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I believe that. Where, where do you come from? Yeah, and I've, I said the same thing. I said that there are some things in there when we look at it that can say I can find, I can find agreement on some things, especially where it came from when he talked about is it possible for a black person to get justice in our legal system? There was a time when it was very difficult for a black person to get justice in sure. America. Sure. It was almost impossible. Jury of your peers, you weren't going to be tried by your peers. It was going to be a bunch of white people, a white judge, a white prosecutor, prosecutor right. and a white sheriff in a white town. Emmett Till's mom was, was a very dear friend to me. We went to the same church. And so we can see, you know, the history of blacks in the justice system yep. and whites in the justice system. Wow. Whites got away with things, yeah. you know, things that anybody else should have been convicted for. So I think we can agree that there are some things that were in our system that were systemic at one point that really made it difficult for blacks to get justice in these areas. But now we have to come forward to now and say, is this the same country as 1952, the same country as 1962? Larry Elder says, this is not our grandfather's America. We have come a long way from that. But there are individuals who want to say that every fiber of American culture is imbued with racism. Right. You as a white person, you are racist. You have no option. You're just a racist. You're just a racist because of who you are. You might not even intend to be. But because of the lack of pigment in my skin. That, that, and that makes you, and you see things a certain way. Yeah. Nobody else accepts, allows for the fact 
that there's a certain tribalism that goes on with all people. Sure, right? absolutely. I, I came from, you know, my church uh, when I was at for years was a diverse church. We Intentional, you know, we worked at it. You know, yes. there was an all-white church, a white flight church. They decided in 1990, we're going to stop running and we're just going to embrace the community. So in Dalton, it became a, a mixed church. We were having our church picnic and under the pavilion in, South, in uh, Veterans Park in South Holland. And I told Dan, you know, the, my associate, I said, Dan, come here, take a look at something. And we looked at the group. All of the white people were sitting over here. All of the black people were sitting over here. No kidding. Now, I know these people loved one another. I mean, we had great relationships at the church. But it was just kind of how people just kind of gravitated to their, to their own area. Everyone has preferences. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, you, you're more comfortable with your culture. You understand your culture better. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't like the other culture or that you have animus against them. Yeah. You know, simply because you might prefer right. your own. Right. Absolutely. We have, we have to allow for human beings to be human. Absolutely. Well, regarding the, the, the privilege thing, though, I have to address that for a second because I bristle. When I hear that, you know, you have white privilege. You know, uh, Pastor Doug Wilson says it may actually be called God's blessings, mm -hmm. you know, um, because I came from a middle class, uh, hardworking family with both a mother and a father who made sure I did my schoolwork, right? You know, um, that, that kind of a situation. Today we're, we're seeing rates of um, single motherhood uh, that are a shocking in certain areas, and that's precisely because um, these families are not following God's principles when it comes to marriage and family and raising children, and there's consequences. Absolutely. To, that, to goes, that goes back to what you were saying earlier about certain policies and how they affect our communities. You know, there are certain policies that destroy the family, that doesn't right. hold the family Absolutely. together. Absolutely. And, you, of course, you know the Moynihan Report back in, in, in the 60s. That's right. When the black— Senator Moynihan. Right. When it a was, liberal Democrat. Right, when it was only 23 <laughs> percent. But there was a black sociologist, E. Frank Frazier, who wrote a book about the Negro family in 1932, I think it was, and it was only 14 percent. There was, there was a time when we, we had nothing going for us. We had no rights, no privileges, but we had our families. That's right. And our families were, were able to help us to be able to survive and to grow right. and to prosper so much so that there was a time in places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, when blacks were prospering. You know, they were great. They had families were together. They had businesses. They were doing well. They were doing well. Now, 72% illegitimacy rate. Oh, that's no so concept hard. of family. There's nobody teaching the children. We're raising up a generation of children that don't know the concept of family, that's right. doesn't know the Lord. And it, so this is what we get. And every weekend in Chicago, especially during the summer, we see the gang violence spiral out of control. Those gang members come from broken homes. Absolutely. And every single one. Their daddy, if they had one, would... <laughs> pull them by their ear and say, get your butt inside, you know. I had a daddy. That's right. I, I grew up, it was eight kids in our family. I had, it was f five boys. My daddy was a daddy. <laughs> I feared my father more than I feared gangs or anything else <laughs> because my father was, he, he was a responsible <laughs> individual who raised his children. Yep. He struggled, you know, just like any other. Absolutely. He had to work his fingers to the bone and my mom, <clears throat> but my dad made sure that none of his daughters were going to have a baby until they were married, and none of the sons would go to jail because he was 
responsible for us. Yep. When you take that responsible person out of a young man's life, yes. when, when, the, when the father is not raising the children, the streets are going to raise the children. That's it. And those are going to be the values and the principles that he's going to grow up embracing instead of what your dad's supposed to be teaching you. Well, this is Illinois Family Spotlight, our conversation with the Reverend Pastor. Caesar LaFleur continues after this. Only Christ offers true rest. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. In a recent interview with Oprah Winfrey and Vanity Fair, Ellen Page opened up about her decision to live as a man. Page now goes by the name Elliot and teared up while describing the gender dysphoria that led to her decision. The most significant difference is that now I'm able to just exist, she said. From the significance of biological realities, the laws that put children at risk, the stakes in the cultural debate over gender are huge. Page's interview, however, is a reminder that caught up in these issues are hurting people, souls longing to be comfortable with who they are, feeling real pain. Contrary to the hollow ideas about reality and our identities being self-determined, a Christian worldview gives solid grounding for our value and our dignity and offers us the rest in Christ we need by knowing God who made us in His image. Even as we stand for truth in this confused cultural moment, God's love must shape our message and our motive. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining us here on Illinois Family Spotlight. Monty Lyric along with David Smith hey. and our special guest, the Reverend Caesar LaFleur. What's his title, really? Bishop of Truth, according to our friend John Anthony on 560 AM. He's got a great program called Black and Right every Saturday. What is it, at 1 o'clock, right? And one, from 1 to 3 on AM 560. 1 to 3 and 560. Yeah. It's a good show. Pastor, how does critical race theory encourage discrimination against Christians? I think critical race theory tries to hold people responsible for behavior that they're not necessarily responsible for. I think um, it, it, it violates the concept of grace, which we as Christians have been taught that that's what we ought to embrace because by grace are we saved. And you know, in, in Romans chapter five, I believe, it says where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Mm-hmm. Talking about the fact that, you know, the, hey, the greater the sin, and then once we accept Christ, the grace is extended to us. The greater the sin, the greater the grace. And so basically it, it leaves out the whole concept of grace. It, it holds people responsible for things forever without ever extending to them the same benefit that Christ extended to us by giving us unmerited favor, forgiving us for our violations and, and, and removing all of the, the stigma away from it. There are individuals who want to make everyone continue to pay for the sins of their ancestors, for the sins of, of their grandfathers, and you know, without ever saying, hey, you know, grace. I, I heard someone give an illustration of grace this way. It says that if someone murders my son and I chase him down and I find him and I kill him, that's revenge. Mm-hmm. If he murders my son and I chase him down, and I grab him and I turn him over to the police and they indict him and convict him and execute him. You say, that's justice. If I chase him down and they try him, but then they don't execute him, that's mercy. But if the judge says, I'm not going to execute you, and the father says, please turn him over to me and let me raise him as my own son, that's grace. Because in essence, that's what 
God did for us, the very people who killed his son, he embraced us as his own because of the sacrifice that the son made. I think that's what we should be showing one another is grace because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But by the same token that we consider you, we must consider our own sin because just as white people practiced in slavery here, there were black people in Africa who sold people into slavery. Now, do I want to hold the descendants of those African slave traders? Do I want to hold that against their children forever? Absolutely not. We need to be trying to find ways to extend grace to one another because we've all violated each other in so many different ways. We continue to, to disappoint God. We continue to, to, to violate him. Nevertheless, his grace, his grace is sufficient. His grace is extended to us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's hope there through critical grace reality. Absolutely. And that's what I want to be talking about. On, on, and on the 22nd, in, when we have this Worldview Conference talking about that, I want to try to bring that home, that the reality of what we need is grace, as opposed to the condemnation and the punishment that comes with CRT. There's a, there's a reality of grace that we, especially those of us that call the name of Jesus, really need to be championing and showing to one another. Amen. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Uh, that is so good. And, you know... And especially after hearing what you just had to say in the first half of this podcast about what you experienced, uh, Caesar, it's the first time I've heard about it. Mm -hmm. You've got to be full of grace to be mm -hmm. where you are today and extending uh, your love of Jesus through you. I mean, the work that he's doing through you to others. I mean, you mm -hmm. could be a very bitter, angry person for what you went through and saw. But I had a good example. My former pastor, Pastor George Liggins, may his soul rest in heaven. Uh, he was from Mississippi. He was born in 1914. He grew up in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. <laughs> so he went through the worst kind of racism and mistreatment. In fact, he had to leave his home. In the deep south. He had to, he had to, to uh, hitchhike, you know, wow. uh, ride the train. What do you call it? He had to oh, jump yeah. the trains to leave Mississippi sure. because... They were after him because he mouthed off to a white man. Oh. And people told him, you got to get out of here. They will kill you. Mm. But Pastor Liggins told me once, he says, I know that I have the love of Christ in my heart because I can love white people. <laughs> the things that they did to me, I didn't ever think that I would ever be able to let go of that. You see, I grew up in a time, he said, that if, you know, the, the streets were dirt. And when it rained, it would become mud. Mm. And if he was walking down the sidewalk and there was a white man coming the other way, he had to get off the sidewalk and get into the street to get into the mud to give that white man the respect. Now, what he went through, I went through nothing like that. Mm -hmm. I had my moments, but I think about some of our ancestors, what they went through, and the fact that many of those men loved the Jesus enough and had the love of God in their hearts that they can embrace their white brothers and sisters and not hold that against them. It gave me a real great illustration. Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit dwelling in those guys can do that. And it takes the Holy Spirit in order yeah. to be able to do that. We don't have the capacity no, to love don't. one another. We don't have the capacity to forgive one another. That's why we should pray, Holy Spirit, come and change my heart. This is what our nation needs now, a move of God's Spirit. We do. We need a move of God's Spirit because this hatred and bitterness is just... God calls us to systemic love. There you go. Boy, <laughs> oh you, you're right, though. 
the wordsmith here. Let me, let me, get, let me get my pencil out. I'm going to preach that one one day. Yeah. Well, there's truth there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the way that we're going to win the world. That's our system. That's the, the system that God used to redeem us. It was love. It was through love. Love kept him on the cross. Agape love. It's love, and that's the system that we're going to change the world. That's what we get in the commandment, to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, everything with us, and love our neighbors. And I'm not going to get confused about love. Love is not just romantic, fuzzy feeling. Mm. Love is equal parts of grace, truth, and justice. The first one is grace. Mm. Well, and then that's, of course, the story of the... Um, uh, we find that kind of love in the story of the Samaritan. Absolutely. Right? Yes, right. The good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. They were um, racially um, at odds with each other. And yet you had a guy stop and pick up a Jew, mm-hmm. um, a Samaritan, pick up mm-hmm. a Jew and care for him lovingly. So, yeah, that's what Jesus calls us to. Absolutely. And we, we've got to ask the Lord to help us to rediscover that on, on a mass level. Where's about we're caring for one Amen. another. There are a couple other things I want to talk about, and, and I think that ties back to critical race theory and what's going on, but what's happening in our public schools. Mm-hmm. The indoctrination, uh, they're not educating kids in the basics, math, science, English, <laughs> all that stuff, but they are concentrating on things like critical race theory, LGBT history and uh, comprehensive sex education. Well, uh, it's LGBT mm-hmm. and Planned Parenthood sex ed. Mm-hmm. You know That's all right. that and Black Lives Matter and, and, and Black Lives Matter. Right. All mm-hmm. this, and you believe it's time to get these kids to get them out. out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do mm-hmm. we do that? Well, and, and that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about now is that I believe speaking to the church. I believe we have a responsibility to make getting, helping our people get our children out of the indoctrination of public schools, the modern day mission field for the church. Churches have resources. Churches have a responsibility to do that. And so I'm, I'm a, a, in favor of home schools, church schools, church school co-ops, any kind of way to get our children out from underneath that indoctrination. It's almost parental malpractice to me. Mm. And it's, it's Christian malpractice to me, seeing everything that's going on in our public schools to let our children remain in that indoctrination. You talked about some of the things that they want to do. First of all, they're taking our children away from us. Yeah. You know, taking our influence out from our children and they're raising them in, into their own theology, their own uh, beliefs, their own. So False religion. They're programming our children. That's right. And so we need to get our children out. I don't think that there's a possibility of, of uh, reforming. reforming it. Nope. Sometimes things get so bad that you just got to replace it and That's get right. rid of it. And I'm a strong proponent of getting our children out of public schools. And so it would take, to borrow on Monty's phrase here, uh, a little systematic love. Mm-hmm. Uh, on our part to pull our kids out and our churches being part of this and um, save them from this godless indoctrination. But, you know, what's troubling to me is you, you use the word malpractice on parents and, and it sparked some thought in my, my mind. You know, so many Christian parents do not understand their obligation before the Lord regarding training and discipling their mm-hmm. own children, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's their responsibility, and they're not getting it at the public school. In fact, they're getting um, the the Babylon uh, religion, mm-hmm. absolutely, <laughs> uh, instead of the Christian religion. Um, this is an opportunity for us 
not only to sound the alarm about how bad it is in our government schools, but how good it could be Mm -hmm. if parents take their God-given roles and responsibility in teaching the next generation. Absolutely. You can raise up a remnant that could have tremendous influence in the state, in the nation. The question I ask, I said, just and look, for the kingdom. look at what our school systems are producing. Are we satisfied with that? Absolutely Are we not. satisfied with what our children are becoming? Do we see children that are growing on without a knowledge of, of the ways of God? You know, the Bible teaches us specifically to teach your children the ways of God while you're sitting in the house with them, while you're walking down the street with them. Teach them that. Have it embedded in them so that as they grow older, they won't depart from it. That's right. But what parents have done is that we've turned over our responsibility to the state because we're busy working, doing a lot of other things. We just simply say, hey, go. Pursuing good goals, but not necessarily but not, the best goals. And not the God goal. And not, not the, the goal that not God has given us. the number one responsibility. Yep. Yep. We're turning our children over for, what, 15,000 hours <laughs> to the public schools? And then, what, we give them like 30 minutes of Sunday school, 45 minutes of Sunday school? Oh, like that's going to balance that off? Right. Yeah. You know, I use the, the Vody Bauckham quote. Say so we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and then act surprised when they come home as Romans. That's right. Absolutely. Because we're sending them to the places that's going to indoctrinate them in that. They want them to embrace homosexuality. They want them to embrace critical race theories. You know, Black Lives Matter, there's a video called The War on Children where they're sexualizing our children. Yeah. And they're teaching them curriculum that's so profane that they couldn't even look at it on the floor of Congress. Hmm. And that's a documentary? That's a documentary, the, the, the War on Children. So, you know, um, I told my sister just the other day about a Chicago Tribune expose that was done a couple years ago that showed 520 cases of sexual abuse done by a Chicago public school employee to a student in the school. And that was over 10 years. Mm. Caesar, that's one a week. One a week. Unbelievable. This, the, and she was shocked. What I'm saying is a lot of people don't understand. It's not just um, they're failing them academically, which they are. They are. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and corrupting them morally. But they're also putting their physical and sexual and mental well-being at stake. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you talk about a war on children. Through our education system, the public uh, government school education system. But really, if you think about it, it's a war on the church. Because these kids, when they get away from mom and dad, go on to the government university, etc., they don't come back to the church. And if you see that your church is dying, maybe that's a big reason why. Absolutely. Mm, that's a good point, right? Mm-hmm. Barna has mm-hmm. come out and said, uh, study after seven, study, that uh, people after high school are leaving the faith in the church in droves. You, you see that in churches that you're visiting, and et cetera? Yeah, absolutely, you're right, because there's, there's no anchor. There's no anchor there that's holding them there, and they're getting exposed to a different perspective. You know, we're, we're competing with the world. Yeah. for the thoughts and hearts of our children. Mm. And the world is investing a lot more into it than the church is. And so that's why I'm saying that we really need to regain that balance, regain that influence on in our children. We are supposed to be the ones that, that raise our children up, to put into them, because it's more than just education money. 
you know, it's not just getting an education. Education is a word we use. It's character building. It's wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. That's it's character building you know. character in them. It's, it's teaching them the ways. It's producing solid citizens, Christians, people Amen. with values and those things. Productive members of society. Productive members of society. We, we, the kids are coming out of school, and I didn't even know how to pull their pants up. <laughs> <laughs> so true. How, true. How, how have we come to be okay with that? Where you got young men walking around with their pants halfway down. How are we okay with young women who think that the only value they bring to the table is the size of their behinds, their sexuality? There's yeah. so much yeah. more than that. And there's so much more they can be, but they're not going to learn that in the schools because those are not the things that the schools are emphasizing. They're emphasizing their own worldview. And it's not it's, anything that God has established, the devil is going to be against. So how, how do we uh, inspire, encourage, um, uh, lead, um, cast vision for Christian parents? Because um, the left seems to be very dedicated to making disciples of their false religion. Um, how do we get our Christian parents and grandparents to see how vitally important it is for them to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. I think this is one of the challenges we've got to take to pastors and churches directly. Yeah. And we have to yeah. show them. Uh, I was doing a, a project with Latasha Fields, mm -hmm. and we were doing a... a She's heads up the parentalrights.org group here in Illinois. Absolutely. And so we had some teachers, actually, and parents on a Zoom call, and most of them had no idea about these things. They didn't know that, you know, uh, was it HB 0246 uh, with the homosexual inclusion? Yes. That it was passed into law on July 1st, 2020. Right. They had no idea about comprehensive sex education. They didn't right. know. So what we have to do is we have to make them aware, yeah. cry loud. They're not, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Uh, so true. And so we've got to inform them, and then we've got to challenge them. Yeah. And then we've got to show them the way. One of the things I love about what we're talking about doing is showing pastors and churches, here's a way that you can approach this, that you can be instrumental in, in, in raising up a next generation of children that has an awareness of the biblical principles that they're going to need. And, you know, we need to pray that there'll be a response from the churches and the pastors, something similar to what happened with Nehemiah when they finally found the scrolls and started reading from it. What was the response of the people? Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. cried and said, we've not heard this. We didn't know. And they started to repent. Mm -hmm. May the Lord grant us repentance for our failure to do this. And, uh, and may we have a revival Absolutely. in that we return to it. You mentioned Nehemiah. I love reading in Nehemiah one when he heard how what the situation was back at home. Mm -hmm. How the you know the, the the gates of authority would burn down and, and the people were in a reproach. The Bible says that he stopped and he wept. Mm -hmm. His heart was broken, and that's what we have to pray that God would give a spirit of brokenness mm. across this nation that we would stop and we would weep. Then the Bible says he asked the Lord, you know, give me favor, give me what I need in order to be able to do that. Give me all of the openings and, and all of the permissions I need. Lord, help me to go and do something about it. And I think that's where we need to be, broken, and then pray for God for direction, and then the obedience to do it. And being willing to let God use you. And let God use us. And Amen. right now, this is an important time. It we've is. got to save our children. You know, we've been talking about it as pro-lifers, saving our children in the womb. And that's we right. say that. But we've got to save the generations that make it here. That's right. What, what good is it to allow them to be born and then allow them to be ruined? 
there's a mission field that is white and ready to be harvested. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. The wheat field. Yep, yep. Dave, I need a ding, ding, ding sound. Ding, ding, ding. Lightning round. Pastor, Democrats in the legislature want to decriminalize hard drugs, uh, heroin, cocaine, etc. Bad idea. Why? It's a bad idea because of the destructive outcomes that happen in minority communities especially, but across the board. So these are the type of policies that we talked about before that are destructive. These things are destructive because what you're doing now, you're just taking all of the prohibition away from horrible behavior, which is going to lead to more death, more violence, more destruction. It's going to, the streets are bad now. Imagine what they're going to be like now when there's no consequence for horrible behavior. The Bible says when sentence against an evil work isn't executed speedily, if you don't have a, a sentence or a consequence, since the hearts of men are licensed to do that which is evil, right now drugs and those things are illegal and look what we get. Now imagine when they're, they're not, when you decriminalize that, then where, where's the end of that? People need to speak out and get in contact with their lawmakers about this. Absolutely, absolutely. They need to raise their voices up. But the most effective thing that we can do, which is what we are not set up to do, is that parents need to be raising their own children. That's right. Because I, I grew up with a dad. You could have dumped a whole truckload of drugs in front of my house. I wasn't going to touch it <laughs> because dad had, had didn't steal something different than us. So the ultimate responsibility lies in the people that are missing. That's the parents. But the government comes along and makes it even harder to protect our children. And to that point, in First Peter, or is it Second Peter, we're told the duty of government is to punish wickedness mm -hmm. and to reward goodness. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, but when you have um, mind-altering, intoxicating substances on the streets and being used by people, that's wickedness. Absolutely. And, and what do you think is going to be the condition of people that can just get this without any consequence when it comes down to how they function in their jobs, That's how right. they function in schools? Well, but mm. the, the proponents will say, well, you know, we can regulate this and we'll be able to tax this and invest in the communities and it'll be, you know, we can make a bad situation better. Isn't alcohol regulated? Is it yes. alcohol taxed? Yes. How many people die from drunk drivers? Exactly. How many people's lives are ruined because of alcoholism? Yeah. Yeah. They don't and, care. And how many people care. will be dying from smoke-related cancer through legal marijuana 10 years from now? And then what are you telling me? Right. You say that you're okay with me ruining my life and my health because you can get some tax revenue from it. Yeah. By the way, the big beer companies, the alcohol companies, are not fighting marijuana and its growth in our uh, United States because they've now invested in it. There They're part of big marijuana. Yeah. All right, Senator Tim Scott, or as the left refers to him as Uncle Tim. Uncle Tim. Yeah. Is he presidential timber? He is to me. <laughs> That's good. Well, this guy's a wordsmith. <laughs> He absolutely is, and I was so proud of him the other day yeah. when he did the response. And I yep. was uh, really encouraged by his, you know, I was really happy about his courage, and his, he wasn't timid, and he made a lot of sense. And, and actually, isn't it funny that Kamala Harris agrees with him, and Joe Biden agrees with him? America is not a racist country. Are there some races in America? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, they, they had to agree with him that it's not a racist country. Yeah. Good. Could, could he be our first conservative black president? You know, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, primary. 
I think he's going to be one of the people, you know, that's in the running for that. I would love to see him run. You know, if Donald Trump is not going to run, even if he does, you know, tell him how to throw his hat in the ring. Yep. And, and let's see where it goes. You know, Tim Scott, Ted Cruz, Josh Howley, uh, and then, of course, outside the Beltway, you've got uh, Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. All these guys are pretty good conservatives, mm -hmm. and they show, and they show us, the Republicans especially, that you can win by going on the offense. Absolutely. And I, I think if Tim uh, Scott's going to have trouble, it would be if DeSantis decides to run, because DeSantis is a governor, yeah. and, it, you know, what he's done with covid and his strong stances, you know, and then the things that the media has tried to do to him already. He's shown that he's a very, very strong, you know. Leader. Yeah, yep. absolutely. They're out absolutely. to destroy both these guys. Absolutely, yeah. they are. But you so, know what? I think most Americans are now seeing through the media. Don't Amen. you? I think so. What they yeah. meant for evil, God means for good. Amen. Because they makes the contrast. When you see an individual like this, people watch that. They go, well, what did he say that's so horrible <laughs> right. that everybody's got to jump on <laughs> right. him? You know, why is that? I think people see that. Hmm. Well, Pastor Caesar LaFleur, thank you so much. You will be speaking May 22nd at Revive Church in Collinsville for our Worldview Conference Beyond Hate and Division Conference, where we take on critical race theory with yeah. some other expert uh, panelists. Angela Sailors, we've got Alex Newman, and we have uh, Stacy on the right. Yes, uh, Stacy Washington, Washington mm -hmm. who is uh, a St. Louis native, and she'll come across the, the river to join us. Yeah, I know we've talked at length here, but I am looking forward to hearing yeah, you there. Me too. Oh, absolutely. Me too. I'm looking forward yeah. to it myself. So <laughs> if you folks would like to make a trip uh, there, uh, yeah, there's folks coming down from the Chicagoland yeah, area. Make a you know make a little weekend excursion out of it, and uh, you can register online at IllinoisFamily.org. Just click events or give us a call at seven zero eight seven eight one nine three two eight. Pastor, God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. And uh, boy, you're a voice of truth that uh, is so needed. That's in right. the Chicago area, in Illinois, and, we and hope, in America today. And we hope to be able to announce something in the near future, too, that we're going to be working on closely. I know he's going to work with you on something at the National Religious Broadcasters. Oh, yeah. And so we've got, uh, we've got some projects lined up that we're working on with uh, Pastor I'm LaFleur here. I'm going to and Shay for that. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Thank you, folks. Do tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight and support the work and ministry of the Illinois Family Institute. We could use your support, prayer support, and financial support every day. Thanks again, and stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.